Hey everyone, before we start, I know you're all tired of hearing me say this, but I want to encourage you before we end our season to go support us. Either go to iTunes and buy our soundtrack or go to patreon.com slash between us, where we will be posting some kind of content during the off season. Thanks for your support. So let's talk about why it is that these dark themes are in most of your movies. I messed up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. I mean... Oh, yeah. So we... He showed me this this morning, and I had a chance to read it. Oh, it's, uh, it's intense stuff. I'm actually really darn specific. Uh, I am curious. Does, does your dad, does he, does he talk to you about these kind of things? Most of that stuff is just on the news. Really? I personally have not seen this kind of stuff on the news. You know why you're here, right? I mean... Well, you probably think that the paper is too violent and yeah. that a girl shouldn't be writing about wars. Okay, come on. This is not because you're a girl. This has nothing to do with you being a girl. Well, I'm sorry if it was too much for you. <laughs> okay. Mr. Lee, uh, he's kind of hard to shock, and uh, he was, this was shocking. This was pretty alarming. And I feel like I need to tell you that these horrors that you're writing about, they got extreme consequences. And what your dad does is, that's not a game. That's not a game. Do you understand that? Have you ever served your country, Bradley? Okay, when we're at school, it's Mr. Kaprachuk, but uh, no, I have not. Well, Bradley, then I really don't think you know anything about it. I'm John Totten, and this is Between Us. Hi, Megan. Hello. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? Good. Let's start off with the newest stuff that you've been working on. Tell me about Sadie. Sadie is a movie that I wrote and directed that came out this year, and it's about a 13-year-old girl who lives with her mom in a trailer park. Mm -hmm. Her dad is serving repeated tours of duty overseas, and Sadie idolizes him and wants him to come home, but he keeps re-upping. Meanwhile, her mom has basically moved on. She's given up on that relationship and has started to date a new person, and Sadie takes it into her own hands to... And the new relationship and the way she tries to solve these problems is through means of war. Mm-hmm. And it goes to some dark places. And it goes to some dark places. I'm doing something a little bit different today. I'm not talking much about therapy. I've been thinking a lot about the future of this show. And I sometimes think that I'd like to be able to talk to people who aren't just practitioners and patients. Our guest today falls into this category. Her mom was a social worker who worked with kids, and I'm definitely interested in what it's like to be in a family with a therapist. So we talk about that. But mainly, I was interested in her movies. Megan Griffiths is a filmmaker here in Seattle, and her movies often have some sort of dark psychological element. Her newest film, Sadie, 
stars Melanie Linsky and John Gallagher Jr., but revolves around a character played by Sophia Mitri Schloss. It's a story of a young girl whose father is away at war, and whose coping mechanisms go unnoticed by her distracted mom. It's the kind of movie for which you would not want to hear a spoiler. And this conversation is pretty spoiler-free. But either way, you should go find it on Amazon Prime and stream it today. Megan sat down with me to talk about her filmmaking process, her social worker mom, and her experience as a female filmmaker who interacts with the Hollywood system. What was your inspiration? Yeah, basically just reading the news and feeling inundated by the violence of our world and Mm -hmm. everything from, you know, our society and our culture solving problems with violence on a political level and an international scale and all the way down to what we see in movies and television and video games and the way that people were not affected. I saw so many people brandishing guns, firing guns, murdering people and going about their day without having Mm -hmm. any effect at all on them or seemingly no effect at all. And I thought that was probably the most damaging thing of all to young people to watch. For it to be normalized. Yeah, for it to look like ending a life was not a big deal. Right. And wouldn't affect you psychologically for the rest of your life. What's interesting about that to me is that when I think about that culture of violence in our country, I think of it as a particularly male phenomenon. Mm. And so it's interesting to see a story like Sadie. It is, um, I guess, particularly jarring in that it's unique in that way. Yeah. Uh, Not that it's impossible. Not that it doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about it because when I first started writing this, it was a long time ago. It was 2009 when Mm. I first started writing Sadie. And I felt like I had seen movies where young men were grappling with violence and I'd seen movies where soldiers were grappling with violence and like PTSD, but I hadn't seen it about a young girl. And I just think that everything that affects young men in this society is also affecting young women. And I didn't think we were talking about that enough. And so that's why she, it became this story about this young girl. And I think of her as being a little soldier a model of her dad and there's a lot of good things that soldiers do in this world but there's also the fact that they're taught to other the enemy and not think of them as human and you know there's a distance that is sort of manufactured there in order to make the fact that they're going over there and and killing other people palatable for lack of a better word or or, Mm -hmm. you know or just something that anyone could live with you know you have to think of this other person as the enemy and in a really uncomplicated way right and so that's how Sadie thinks of this guy that her mom's dating is that even if he's multi-dimensional she's just going to see him as the enemy right hey can we talk I don't want to talk with him here Cyrus went home. Sadie, did you know we haven't gotten a letter from your dad in three years? He writes every other week. He writes to you every other week. He loves you a lot, babe. He just got over me. The letters are supposed to... 
happy to both of us. Your movie before Sadie was The Night Stalker, mm-hmm. which was a movie about a serial killer that w- really existed. Yes. It was about uh, Richard Ramirez, who was dubbed The Night Stalker by the police and the press, or one of the two. And he was a serial killer who was on the loose in Southern California in 1985, primarily, and killed 13 people as of what they sort of could prove. There mm-hmm. were other cases that prosecutors thought that he had something to do with but didn't have the strong evidence. So they really only went for the 13 that they thought they could get him on. He was sitting on death row for 30 years. He didn't ever get killed by the system. He got he had lymphoma and died in prison. And uh, I was offered the opportunity to write a script about him. And my approach to it was to create a female character who could go in and talk to him because, for me, the most interesting thing about him is to try to figure out what drove him to do these horrible things. And his biography, which we had a source material, talked about his upbringing and all the different things that happened to him over the course of his life that created the monster that he was by 25. He was really a perfect storm of terrible formative experiences. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the cool meta narratives to that movie is that, and I think this was influenced by your own biography, that her experience of seeing him on the news as a little girl comes into play in her relationship to him. And, mm-hmm. and that was influenced by your own. I felt like I had been impacted by his presence around Southern California because I lived there in Riverside, mm-hmm. California when I was a kid. I was only 10 at the time. And the character I, I, the fictional character I created is in her teens. But even though I'd never come anywhere near him, as far as I know, I felt really impacted by the sort of specter of him. Mm-hmm. And then I thought it would be interesting to talk about a young woman who saw him on TV and how it might have impacted her coming of age and specifically sort of sexually how she came of age and, and formed. I was trying to create a female counterpart to to Ramirez. She doesn't turn into a serial killer, but she has her own sort of predilections formed by that. And he also was impacted by much more horrific things when he was young, like his cousin killed his wife. His cousin killed his cousin's wife right, <laughs> right in front of him when Ramirez was 12. Mm-hmm. His cousin also was in Vietnam and showed him all these horrible pictures of decapitated Vietnamese women, people that they had really damaged in you know overseas in that war and he brought back polaroids and showed ramirez those when he Mm -hmm. was like a preteen and so all these things that he saw at that age kind of formed it really altered his chemistry i think and created this guy who was you know sexually intrigued by violence and bloodshed because it was tied together at a young age what was the research obviously there's a book that Mm-hmm. It's based on was there were there other elements to your research for that film? The book was the primary thing because it's just kind of a straight ahead. This is how he this is how he grew up. These right. are all the people in his life. These are, these are the major sort of timeline moments that were formative, and this is what how many people he killed. And then every time, anytime I'd get, I think of something, I would sort of do a deep dive on the internet and and find you know articles and and try to dig in and. Of course, all of it's formed also by the fact that 
my mom was a social worker, so I was, you know, I think about things in that specific way mm-hmm. a lot, you know, and, and how kids are formed by the circumstances of their childhood and become the adults that they are. The first time I saw Sadie, I was in a feedback screening, and I signed a non-disclosure agreement. But I don't think it's breaking it to tell you that I found the young girl to be kind of disturbing. And when I brought up the possibility of some kind of dark psychology or personality disorder, I got a lot of evil eyes from the other viewers in the room. The angry responses prompted Megan to rein in the discussion. People in the room didn't want to accept that this young, shy, sympathetic girl could be that pathological. I think that's one of the things that Megan does really well. In her movie on Richard Ramirez, the real-life serial killer, she creates a world in which he's relatable. Sadie isn't a serial killer, but her dark corners are presented with a softness that does not allow us to forget that she's also just a little girl who misses her dad. Should we talk about your mom? Yeah. She got her master's in social work, and she was a private practice social worker most of the last... Uh, I think she had 15 years private practice. And before that, she worked for the Department of Health and Welfare. And in California, she worked for the like a sort of a state-funded social work position. And then she had her own private practice where she counseled young kids who were abused by their guardians. I'm really fascinated by what it means to grow up the child of a therapist, social worker, and I know you don't have anything to compare it to. <laughs> you don't have other moms to compare it, your, nope. your experience to. <laughs> and I don't really have a specific question other than what was that like? Well, it's interesting because she was a really positive person. And if people say that about me a lot, that I make these really dark movies, but I'm a pretty like chipper mm-hmm. person in life and, and not I don't seem to be like, I don't have a cloud hanging over me all the time. And she's the same, even though she dealt with all sorts of, like the darkness of humanity while she was at work every day, she would come home and make us dinner and chat about our day at school. And, you know, she was, she was a really lighthearted, positive influence. I mean, there were certain death, certainly days where she would come home from work and bring some heaviness with her because of something she had dealt with at work. If there was a person that I went to school with, she would never tell me that she worked with that person. Sometimes they would, They'd be like, your mom's my counselor. She's so great. I love her so much. You know, and I'd be like, weird. Now I know something about you that I don't know if I should know, you know, right. because I know what she does, you know. But um, but like where there was younger people or people I would never have encountered, sometimes she would tell me about them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I would kind of meet them because I would go into her office, like, and they would be coming out of, you know, her office at the time. So right. I kind of had some visibility. There was one young girl who wanted my mom to adopt her and she cuz she loved her and then you know but that wasn't something that my mom was ever thinking about I don't think but or probably able to do or probably able to do but I had some visibility into it very limited and she would talk about it sometimes in a way that I think was formative for me because she had such deep empathy for both the kid and the abuser like she would always talk about the a person who was inflicting the harm as someone who was also damaged and had also been formed in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, number one was the thing that drew me to the most of the material that I work with because I, I get really drawn to 
characters and people who make decisions that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And I want to try to figure them out. So Ramirez is the number one version of that. But there all there's a lot of that recurring through my films. So as a as a kid, were you aware of how her work affected her when it showed? You know, I don't have strong memories. I don't like have memories of her like coming home and sobbing or anything like that. Yeah. It would be more like she would be quiet some nights, you know, and I mean, there were like kind of funny stories where like she had to go out to these houses to see why the kids weren't in school and mm-hmm. like people would like pull guns at her and stuff like really. I mean, they were, it's, I guess it's not funny. The way she told the story was always really funny because like she somehow had a gun pulled on her in one moment and then had the guy like laughing around a you know a table in 20 minutes and you know she she had a way with people but I yeah in terms of how she brought her work home I I mostly didn't see it so she's pretty good at protecting you and your sister from yeah and it sounds like humor would also be like a coping mechanism for her probably yeah yeah you know we always had dinner together Mm -hmm. as a family we'd always sit down and sit around the table and talk about our days you know my day at school and my sister's day at school my dad's day at work and and my I I don't remember my mom ever being like and here's all the people that I counseled (laughs) today you know it's just like if something else happened or she ran into a friend of mine at lunch or something in our little town that we lived in I would hear about that but Mm -hmm. yeah she she kept it pretty separate do you have any awareness of how her counseling principles may have overlapped with her parenting principles well, it's interesting because she was really interested in play therapy. Hmm. I know she did a lot of therapy with kids where she would she would have all these toys in her office and they would be able to sort of pick up whatever they were drawn to and play with it. And then she would draw things out of them based on what dolls they were doing, they were playing with. And I definitely think that she was constantly drawing my sister and I out to talk about our feelings about things. Sure. She would be fine with us crying and expressing feelings and sometimes even like anger, you know, she'd say, you know, she'd be like, work through it, you know, and let it, don't let it be inside, you know, just make it be outside, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I would be hard to imagine that she could do that for a living and some of it wouldn't just come home and be part of the way we were raised. Sure. Yeah. Where were you in your work when she passed away? I had just, let's see. I was finished with the Night Stalker, I think. Basically, it was somewhere between the Night Stalker and, and uh, Sadie. And so I'm wondering, was she there with you throughout that process? I never gave her the script to read. My sister read it at some point because she's this creative writing professor and always reads my stuff. But mm-hmm. I never gave it to my mom, and I wish I had because she never saw it. And I dedicated the movie to her because I did feel like the way she dealt with kids was such a big part of the reason I wrote that story Mm -hmm. honestly I I dedicated Sadie to her because of the subject matter and because of the timing but on any of the things that I've ever done could be dedicated to her because like I said she was a very like empathy filled person like she really was driven by empathy in her life Mm -hmm. and that has informed every movie I've ever made it informs the way I sort of operate in the world the way I run a set it's just like primary driving factor of my work and so that's something that has come from her well to go back to the night stalker you're you're thinking about the serial killer and the way your mom would have thought about him i think probably yeah because he was like an abused kid at one point Mm -hmm. you know and i most monsters most people who are 
perpetrators of violent things, I think, you know, that comes from somewhere. They don't Mm -hmm. just come up with that, you know. You're not born a monster. I don't think so. I really find that worldview that some people are just born bad really bleak. And my my work is really dark, but like I I don't think it's bleak. Like they're that hopeless. Some people are born bad, and there's nothing we can do about it. Some like one out of every thousand children is just going to be horrible. Like there is a school of thought that just takes all the onus off of us to treat kids well mm-hmm. and try to make sure that we're not guiding them into these horrible choices and paths. I'm guessing this was a guiding principle for her working with kids. Yeah. And this is where you go to when you're researching your characters that you write. Yeah, I think maybe not even consciously until, you know, I was thinking about it a lot when I was doing Night Stalker and Sadie both. But for my mom, it was, she really cared about kids. Like she really had a, it drove her whole life's work. Hmm. And so I'm interested in kids too, but more just because I feel like, you know, they're becoming the population of the world, you know, and they're, everything that's happening to them is forming them. And soon they'll be living side by side with me as adults. And Mm -hmm. I want them to operate in a way that is kind and empathetic and good. And I think that can be really thrown off when you're a kid more so than you could be changed as an adult by somebody's behavior around you. I think when you're a kid and somebody's behaving a certain way around you, it's soaks in and it, bigger way than it ever does later so it's the most important time did you hear that jesse durance got suspended i guess he was the one who did that bomb threat yesterday i hate mr lee's stupid assignment think of how much more interesting it would be if we wrote about somebody we hate like jesse durance he's beaten you up what how many times nine yeah so what would you write about him i don't really know anything about him but how do you feel about him? Oh, come on, Francis. You hate him. I think he might come from a broken home or something. Don't make excuses for him. You don't even seem happy that he's suspended. I mean, do you know how risky that was? What? I took his cell phone from his bag at lunch and put it back before he ever even knew it was gone. They traced that bomb threat right to him. That's on his permanent record. Permanent record? We're kids, Francis. Nobody cares what we do. As much as I don't like to think of it as a, you know, a, a message movie necessarily, there is a point to it. You know, the reason I wanted to make it was to, t- it's a cautionary tale. It's sure. like, this can happen if you're not talking to your kids, if you're not, if, you know, if this is the world that's influencing them and you're not contextualizing it at all for them, they may c- jump to conclusions that are dangerous. Yeah. And I think in regards to it being a message movie, you can ask really important questions without claiming to have all the answers. Which yeah. It definitely doesn't, it ends very, I wouldn't say cryptically exactly, but it's it sort of has an un, a specifically unsatisfying ending for that reason, because I think it's too complicated a question mm-hmm. to resolve in the course of this movie. Sure. I wanted to raise a lot of questions that people would leave the theater with and keep talking about amongst themselves and thinking about and turning over in their minds. And so it's funny because I think it's so important generally to have an ending that's satisfying, whether that means everyone ends up happy and great or... Mm-hmm. 
some other thing that happens that just feels like it's resolved and satisfied in, in whatever way of, is appropriate. Mm-hmm. And this movie, I really just decided not to do that very purposefully because I wanted people to keep thinking about it. Hmm. And it's been interesting to see how that affects different audience. And what kind of responses have you gotten? We did an academic tour with it, and those responses have been really heartening. The younger audiences have gotten the themes of it, talked about it really intelligently, understood Sadie, understood the world Mm -hmm. that I was drawing. Like, they got it Mm -hmm. in a way that was like, oh, okay. I didn't even think that I was... Like, I've shown it to high school students, and I've shown it to college students, and those ages are really receptive to it in a great way that makes me feel good about that generation because I didn't necessarily think I'm making a movie for young people when Mm -hmm. I set out to make this and I was told by a lot of people when we were trying to get it financed that I was making a movie for adults that starred children and that's a hard thing to market now I've shown it to kids and I'm like oh no it was also for kids it just wasn't really ever given credit I didn't give young people enough credit even thinking about the fact that they would get what I was going for with this movie and honestly they've been some of the best audiences I've had I, I recently started teaching undergraduates a couple of years ago, and they're far more emotionally intelligent than I was when I was their age. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. And like I said, super heartening. Like, it really made me feel good about them. I think the bigger theme to me is <laughs> this theme of trauma mm-hmm. and survival and the different ways different people survive by yeah. coping with trauma. Yeah. Some in dark ways, some in triumphant ways. If someone knows you, it's surprising to see these movies come out of you. Like you've just, you said earlier, like being a chipper, pleasant person, and you don't have to get into particular traumas on this <laughs> show. But you don't necessarily seem like a person who has been like, like your experience has been marred ir- irreparably by trauma. And yet no. you write about it a lot. Yeah, I agree with you. And I don't have some deep, deep hidden <laughs> trauma that I'm hiding from everyone. I did have a, a mom who dealt with this stuff, and it, it, right. it, I think it just implanted an interest in it in my brain. You said that you never showed her the script for Sadie. Was she privy to other? I mean, she watched all my other films uh-huh. up to that point. She had dementia for the last, you know, four or five years, so... Mm-hmm. My most prolific time as a filmmaker was when she was sort of less able to absorb it. Mm -hmm. She came to Sundance to see the off hours and definitely was intrigued by the subject matter. And I mean, off hours, while it's not necessarily dealing with like deep trauma, there's the main character was a foster kid and she lived with her foster brother. Mm -hmm. And there was like this romantic thing that happened within the foster family that that story came out of a story that I heard from my mom. So she was interested by those things. And that was just a small subplot in the off hours, but it's part of like the tapestry of it. I remember writing a paper in undergrad about a photograph that was in a book by Mary Ellen Mark. So it was this photographer who went into a mental institution to take photos of the set of Milos Forman's Wonderful Over the Cuckoo's Nest Mm -hmm. as an assignment. And while she was there, she saw that there was this ward of female patients. She got very interested in them, and she pitched a story to her editor and ultimately went back with another journalist to live at this mental institution with these women for, I think it was three weeks or something. And over the course of the period that she was there, 
you know, she started off thinking these people are really different from us. They're, they don't really look like they're keeping themselves up. They're really vacant, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then they lived with them for three weeks and stopped paying attention to what they looked like. And, mm-hmm. and they, it, they changed and it changed their perception of the mentally ill in a really mm-hmm. interesting way, I thought. And there was one photo in there uh, of a woman who was in this shower, uh, this big communal shower, and she was just in the fetal position, sort of on the ground, in the big wide frame. And I wrote a whole paper about it when I was an undergrad. My mom loved it because she thought it was really an interesting thing to sort of zone in on. So I think that was sort of a piece of my creative work, I guess, analytical yeah, yeah. creative work that she she really latched onto, mm. and then. She was always, you know, incredibly encouraging of all that stuff, any kind of expression. She just really wanted us to have lives that were interesting to us and that some yeah. had passion in our life, you know. Well, and I think mm-hmm. your mom's job required creativity and that she had to be able to conceptualize her clients to be like characters in a story. Yeah. It's funny because I didn't remember this, but my dad, when I, he and I were having that conversation a last week I was like well you would give us great notes on uh, papers and stuff too and he'd say yeah but I would say you know you forgot a comma here or this should be a semicolon and your mom would say but why is that character doing that Hmm. and I don't remember that specifically but he was older than I was then so he probably is right (laughs) I mean that sounds literally like things that I've heard actors say about how their process works right which is I think but I mean generally in my film history I'm working in the capacity that I have as a director like I I get a lot of credit for having these great performances and I think it's because I think about character in the same way the actors think about character mm-hmm. trying to figure out understand why they're doing that the thing that they're doing where it came where it came from wh- whether or not that character would think about the consequences of it or not or where it's leading mm-hmm. those kind of things and that's definitely deep in the writing process and the directing process for me. So I can usually line up with actors on that. Did she ever express pride in your work? Yeah. Oh my God. She was, my parents are both like very expressive of being proud of me. Yeah. Which I'm really, really blessed about. Like yeah. I feel really grateful to have parents who not only encouraged me to do something that's so impractical as to try to make movies for a living, <laughs> um, but to, to be, they just were very encouraging and, express the fact that they were proud of me hmm. all along. I mean, sometimes they would also express like a little bit of concern about where my <laughs> rent money was going to come from. But, you know, they're parents and that's yeah, right. understandable. Okay, so I have a different direction. I'm curious about your experience as a filmmaker and what it has been like since this kind of new cultural awareness. I mean, I say cultural awareness. Women have always been aware of it but now mm-hmm. it's been brought into the forefront. Yeah, it's like now guys are talking about it too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean, it is interesting, but as someone, I mean, the film industry is definitely, I mean, the Harvey Weinstein thing was sort of the the, the mainstream kickoff point for the mm-hmm. conversation. Right. So it's definitely, the film industry is like a huge part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's a industry where there's like a power dynamic at play all the time. And stakes for people that are very high in terms of like making a career or not, you know, being able to do what they want to do for a living or right, not. Right. So it's, I think, understandable that it's been at the forefront of that conversation. And it's really good to see that there's more light being shown on the problem, whether or not the, any of the solutions yield long-term change. Right. I'm just kind of re- holding out and <laughs> waiting to see. I've also watched 
as the statistics haven't moved very far in the in terms of women directing mainstream Hollywood movies. And I feel like the conversation around that's been pretty loud for like the last decade or two. And yet that hasn't changed very much. So I'm really, I'm I'm a little skeptical as much as I want to be optimistic about it. I'm waiting to see the change happen. I will say in TV, there seems to be more measurable progress there. There's more people, more women directing TV. I think it's almost up to 25% maybe, which is still not anywhere near half, but it feels like a giant number compared to the, what, 5% of mainstream feature films. Right. So what is the change that's happening? Is it just that men who behave badly are less tolerated? Is Well, there's certainly been a lot of long-term abusers outed. I mean, a lot. Compared to the amount of people who probably are doing bad things in this <laughs> industry, it's probably a pretty low percentage. But still, high-profile bad guys, you know, have been sort yeah. of ostracized and had a lot of consequences, like all of a sudden for right. these actions that have gone consequence free for so long. And that's probably impacted other people because of the fact that they don't want to lose their job and livelihood. Is there something particular about the entertainment industry and maybe in the type of people it attracts or the type of men it attracts? Yeah. I mean, I don't know because I don't have as much visibility in other industries, but in film, there is a sort of a glamorization of this powerful barking boss, you know, mm-hmm. who's like, who everyone's afraid of him under under him. I mean, this is the the, the sort of director prototype too, which I've never yeah. agreed with. There's certainly lots of people that I think fit that mold, and yeah. it's something that we see as like a type. And then there's the fact that like I was saying there's all these people who need those people to give them grant them approval because those are mm-hmm. gatekeepers you know and there's this is a f- industry full of gatekeepers all the way up and down the line there's somebody telling you whether you get to come to the next level or not and a lot of those people are men because historically they've been succeeding at these high levels in this industry and then granting other men entry you know so mm-hmm. there's a lot of men at the top and then that just breeds an, an atmosphere where where people can abuse that power and right. and use it to their advantage and someone else's disadvantage. Right. I think something that I'm interested in is you talked about that gatekeeping and like the different kind of secret handshakes that we have with people or the ways that we talk or act that show people that we're in the know and we belong. Yeah. I think the music world is very much that way. By the way, the music world has so much reckoning to do on the Me Too stuff. Kind of shameful. Some of the people who have skated through like this. who i'm just out of curiosity r kelly oh right, 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 right. well <laughs> plus many more <laughs> yeah 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 i mean but i i was thinking of like indie music that even there's all there's a i'm lot sure of, there probably there's some a lot of cases of too, but whatever. yeah so we had this conversation months before r kelly was brought back into the forefront of the news by the docuseries surviving r kelly and i was thinking about indie rock artists Shortly after the conversation, alt-country singer Ryan Adams was outed as an emotionally abusive husband to Mandy Moore and a sexual manipulator to young underage fans. It's interesting for me to hear Megan's opinions on the topic because it seems like the filmmaking world was ground zero for the Me Too movement. And my take on it is based on my self-analysis and other people I know who are musicians who are trying to get recognition is that you I think you have people 
with a degree of talent and also a severe lack of self mm-hmm. where they feel like they need more recognition mm-hmm. to make themselves feel whole. Yeah, I think that's true in and films too. Yeah, there's well, a lot of insecurity in both fields, I think, that drives a lot. It's true in therapy as well. Honestly, it's probably true in Probably a in lot every of field, yeah. yeah. And so to me, the, the answer to that is authenticity. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about the film community that I've interacted with, maybe it's because it's not central to Los Angeles, is that I feel like there are a lot of authentic people. Mm -hmm. What is your take on that? I'm definitely drawn to living in Seattle because of that. You know, I would never generalize and say that LA is full of inauthentic people because I know a lot of great people there. But there is like a, well, I always call it like a transactional problem in LA where it's like it's you, it's really hard to have non-transactional interactions with people where you're where one person isn't doesn't stand anything to gain from the other person mm. if you're with it cuz it's such an industry town so you find yourself in a lot of situations where you are at an industry event mm-hmm. and you are a person at a very whatever level you you are at in in the industry and there are all these other people who are higher or lower than you who are gatekeepers or who are desperately trying to get past the gate and so you have all these situations where you're talking to someone and you're either on the end of desperately wanting the other person to grant you entry or you're the person who could get grant entry and constantly has to say no to people that sounds um, exhausting which is exhausting and then i think people retreat from social interactions with people who are below their industry stature uh-huh. and they get more and more isolated from sort of the real world and then you end up with glossed over uh-huh. movies that don't reflect any reality that is recognizable. Uh-huh. And I think it's a problem with the creative side of the industry when people get to that level. I also think it's a problem just living as an artist trying to make it in Los Angeles because you end up in all these situations where you're on one or the other side of that dynamic which is really exhausting and not healthy Mm -hmm. so that's why i've avoided it i don't like feeling desperate and i don't like saying no and i'm not really at the level where i'm granting a lot of people access or not at this point even like when i'm casting or or crewing up a film in seattle i can't hire everybody i know but i don't like the way it feels Mm -hmm. because it's just it's like you want to just hire everybody (laughs) but you can't and so it's like being on that side of it sounds as exhausting as being on the sort of desperate needy side of it which is also exhausting can we talk about actresses yeah two really good actresses that you've gotten to work with i mean you've gotten to work with more than two really good actresses yeah so many actually (laughs) two that uh, stand out to me are melanie linsky and tony collette Mm -hmm. i will say both of them are people who i saw in movies when i was in high school slash early college, Muriel's Wedding and Heavenly Creatures in the early 90s. And I've been fans of them for decades. Is, it a, is that a surreal experience? To- a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you kind of get over it pretty quickly because you have to just work with everybody like they're a human being or else it doesn't go very well. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't be like constantly fawning, you know, or yeah. in awe. But yeah, I, initially it's like, you know, it's like I get to work with Tony Collette pinch me, you know, and then, sure. you know, get to see what she does up close and personal, what Melanie does up close and personal, and become a bigger fan over the course of the project than you even started as because you get to see how freaking good they are. You see them be good in all these other movies and in 
in both cases, sometimes they're the best thing in a bad movie, and sometimes they're a great thing in a great movie. Right. But they're never bad. And then you see them up close and personal, and you get to edit the footage of all their takes. And it's just like, what take do I even choose? They're so good. What are you working on next? I'm trying to figure that out right now. I'd say it was the thing that I was going to do next for the last nine years, basically. Oh, wow. Because I wrote it in 2009. And so you can find interviews after every movie where I say the next thing I'm making is Sadie. <laughs> after Off Hours, after Eden, after like them, just on and on. It's like every, like, because it's been something I've been trying to make for so long. Yeah. So it's actually a little bit strange to feel like it's not, it's like no longer on the to-do list, yeah. you know? And so I've been exploring TV work. I did a couple episodes of Room 104 for HBO. And yeah. I did an episode of Animal Kingdom. I'm going back to do another one of those. And I just did a new show called The Society that shot in Boston this fall. So I've been trying to get out into the TV world and, and get a little bit more experience there. And that's been really fun and interesting. There's lots of good TV going on. Mm-hmm. And also, it's just nice to drop into something and then be done with it, where, you know, not work on something for nine years, for example. Over the years, like, I wanted to make Sadie, and something would happen in the culture, and the whole reason I wanted to make the film was to contribute to this conversation around kids and violence in this culture. So something would happen, like a school shooting or something, Mm -hmm. and I would just be like, I want to enter Sadie into this conversation, because I feel like it's relevant, and it's just been something that I've been trying to say for so long that I'm just grateful it's now out there and it can be taken for whatever it's worth from from whoever watches it because now it's available on iTunes and Amazon and Voodoo and uh, mm-hmm. and that people can find it and watch it out completely out of the context of my me doing a and a or whatever. Right. Or, you know, they can hear something like this and they go seek it out with all this context. But it's going to live on its own now, and that's it's not something I have any control over anymore, so it's just right. like fly, little bird, and then I just have to figure out what I'm doing next and what stories I still want to tell, which is what I'm figuring out. Thanks for talking, Megan. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This has been Between Us. Our special thanks to Megan Griffiths for being our guest. The new film is Sadie, and you can stream it on Amazon Prime. Between Us is produced by myself and Mason Neely, who also composes our music. We had extra editing help by Chris Keene at Cutter's Cathedral in Chico, California. As usual, go and find us at patreon.com betweenus to become a supporter. Leave a review on iTunes or follow us on social media. And until next time, take care.